Hi, welcome to the Macabre Emporium. Let me get my emotional support cat. Okay. <laughs> to be quiet and keep the kids quiet, since he was getting anxiety and he didn't want to kill children. Gertrude's daughter even got to join in on what they considered fun. Tell us about the giant turtle. Alan never showed up, nor was he ever heard from again beyond that point. I'm back, and so are you. Welcome to episode 25 of Macabre Emporium. And if this is your first time joining us, welcome. Welcome. So, kind of a special announcement today. Sarah is back with her normal true crime for you today. Yay, I'm back. Yay me. Yay you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I have nowhere to go with that. So we did something fun last weekend for my birthday. Mm-hmm. What'd we do? We went to go see the Reverend Peyton and the Big Damn Band again. It, again. Yes, we <laughs> did. And it was fantastic. Although standing on that sloped part was probably not the greatest of ideas. No. I hit 40 and my back hurts. And yeah, what we really should have done was switch hit on going outside. What do you mean? Switched on who went outside for a couple minutes and then come oh. back in to save our spot up front, right up, up on the stage. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But the Hooten Hollers, they were, their opening act, they were... They were really good. And like you told me in the truck, you were... Very surprised by who the lead singer was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, in terms of physicality, uh, he is very much not what I expected to see walk out. But it was fine. It, right. I mean, it was interesting, but they were really good. Like, we'll put it this way. It was like the Rick Astley effect for the most part. Pre- pretty much. Yeah. Where the the face, everything about them doesn't match the, the voice. The body doesn't match the voice. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yep. Although I dug the girl with the the saxophone. Yeah. She was cool. I liked mm-hmm. her. Um. Yeah, so go give them a listen if you've never heard of them. Oh. I know David's talked about uh, Reverend Peyton before, but the Hooten Hollers were very good. Check them out as well. I've actually tagged two of our listeners that live in the United Kingdom that are going to where they're going on to our next uh, Reverend Peyton is. So I was like, hopefully they at least go check them out. I know yeah. one of them is probably not really up his wheelhouse, but I'm like, hey, go fucking anyway you're not gonna be disappointed to be fair they're not really up mine either but i like them right and plus where else are you gonna see a man play an axe a, a liter- literal fucking a literal axe. axe as a guitar yeah when i'd walk back in and saw you taking a picture i was trying to figure out what you were you know taking a picture of and then yeah. you showed me after you took it and i was like wait a minute is that an axe it sure the fuck was yeah, and i sent a picture of it to kevin and he's like i'm sorry but is he playing an actual <laughs> axe yep he sure was and then he's got one made out of a gun as well a yeah, rifle he has a rifle it's either like a 22 or a single barrel shotgun i don't remember but it is actually still fully functional there is a video of it on their facebook page of him and literally playing it's pausing taking aim and taking a shot i think at like a water jug or something and then the going show. right back to playing yep I have to prove that it actually is functional kind of like in the great outdoors with the shotgun lamp oh god yeah but yeah, they're pretty cool to see live. They they put on a good show. And they sound amazing live, too. Yep. And like, plus, they set stuff on fire, too. They do. They do. And they're they're fun to watch, for I sure. Never, and still, I've never seen a crash cymbal fly that far before in my life, either. A what? A crash cymbal. Oh, no. <laughs> no. When he kicked it across the stage? More than once. <laughs> More than once? I must have missed it. Yeah. 
I saw the first one. Yeah, he did that at the same time uh, the up in Ferndale at the Magic Bag when we saw him up there, too. Oh, I don't remember that. Oh, no, I do remember that. But yeah, seeing the, the one guy come from behind the stage to pick it back mm-hmm. up and he's just standing up there playing his guitar laughing because he knows he's going to do it again. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. We had fun. I had a good birthday. Work is going better. I'm mm-hmm. catching on and feel, you know, I feel like that month off was definitely needed for me. Right. Um. But I'm back, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> so... Speaking of work and the sorts, we kind of have a little bit of work that we're going to ask of everybody because we have noticed lately in the last week or so we've had a significant amount of downloads. Yeah. We're not sure if it's from the new trailer that I created or our appearance on Danzy True Crime that I brought up before. But if you have not left us a review, it really is going to help us out if you can go and do one either on whatever platform you listen, Apple Music's. Yep. Like the biggest one, everyone says that they need to be left on to make an impact. Yeah. And Spotify, of course. But if you haven't left us a review on whatever player you're listening to on, please, please go ahead and do that for us. Please. So with that's all said and all that fun gobbledygook. Not with, not, we're not done. No, we're not done yet. Also, could you please uh, share our Facebook group? You know, share the link from Spotify, yep. you know, anywhere you see somebody asking for, uh, you know, podcast recommendations or even if it's where our show doesn't fit what they're asking for, yep. throw it in there anyway, because that's what somebody what we've been doing. Yep. Because somebody more than likely will be into true crime or the weird history that we do sometimes. And you never know who could click it and right join the family. So and there you go. That could be another thing that we've been doing. <clears throat> what's that just throwing our i guess shameless promotion in like oh yeah facebook groups that are not yeah. asking for i it. do it all the time definitely shameless i don't give two fucks oh i know i've been waiting for somebody <laughs> to come and like that's not what i ask for i don't care i want people to listen to my shit but chances are somebody <laughs> that is giving you a recommendation for something that would pertain to what you like would also like what we do right so that's that's why i do it Somebody's gonna like something, right? It's like I even had two coworkers that were shocked to find out that I had a podcast when I saw one of them had morbid on a post-it note, and I was <laughs> like, "Nope, we gotta fix this here. Listen to this instead." And then she was like, "What is this?" And you was like, "It's my, it's my podcast." Yep. And I wonder if she has she listened. Have you asked her? Um, I don't know if she has. Kind of want to keep you like, "Have you listened yet? Have you listened yet? Have you listened yet?" And don't want to be like that about it just be like hey i was just curious if you've had a chance to listen to any of it yet and if you have what the fuck do you think right tell me on monday or give give them homework yep you know tell me on monday or whatever the next day is whenever you hear this (laughs) yeah (laughs) even if it's three months from now tell me then yeah hi girl from work i don't know your name (laughs) kylie i think it does hi kylie from work i don't know you but Thanks for listening out. if you're listening. See, now we'll know if she actually does listen because she's like, true. why are you calling me out like that? True. Very true. <laughs> so anyhow. Now, with all that fun gobbledygook out of the way, officially now, yes? Gobbledygook? I don't know what else to call it right now. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're good. We're done with that. That word salad? <clears throat> word soup? Yeah, no, it's better than hand job soup that was brought up in... What? Okay, moving <laughs> on. Brought up in... <laughs> 
moving on. We're moving on. It's, I threw that in there for like an outtake shit because it actually handjob soup was brought up in the current Dark Windows episode. But anyway. Oh, okay. Well, you can put it in there then. But anyhow, what do you finally have for us this week, Sarah? I have true crime. Oh. <laughs> a month and a week off and nothing changed. Oh, why would it change? Why would know. I change? I don't know. I am 40. I'm old. I'm stuck in my ways. Maybe, maybe that you wanted to throw them off real quick and be like, hey, I got an origin story for you or something like that. I to... have true crime. No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. What do you have? A, a pissed off cat. cat. <laughs> a, mouthy, a mouthy old cat, apparently. Yeah. I have some kind of weirdish history. Uh-huh. You read me the title earlier yeah. and I yeah. literally said what the fuck. Yeah. Well, okay, tell 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 them what it is. What I have this week is the lobster war between Brazil and France in the early 1960s. Lobster war. Yep. With lobster cross. <laughs> right? Right? Please tell me there's lobster cross. No, there's not. Fuck. No, okay. No Grady Styles is involved in this. <laughs> Like this, I feel like this is the second time I've talked about Robster Cross. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure the first time was that episode. Oh my goodness. And I kind of decided that maybe through this month being Memorial Day here in the United States towards the end with that one story that I've kept hinting at in various other places, okay. I might do some other oddball military history kind of thing. Of course you would. Military type things for... This month as well. Oddball is your your I know. your it's your niche. I know. Cause you are an oddball. You wouldn't have me any other way. You are a tall ass oddball. And you would still wouldn't have me any other way. Nope. No. Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> okay. So yeah. I'm excited for this one. This one's really fucked up. And I'm so impressed like I don't know if I'm impressed or, like, shocked that you have never heard of this dude being from your state and it being more recent. Huh. All right. So you're ready to get started then? <clears throat> I am. William Gibson Jr., who was a foreman for a tree trimming company, and his wife, Geraldine, was she was the Sears cashier. They had their fourth and last child on October 10th in 1957. Uh, they gave birth to William Clyde Gibson on October 10th, like I said, in Raleigh, North Carolina. The family stayed in Raleigh until William was about two years old, and then they moved to New Albany, Indiana. This is where William would grow up, and this is where shit would hit the fan. William admittedly said that his childhood was great. He was often spoiled. He never went through any traumatic events, no abuse, no neglect from either parent. Yet he did state that his father was a drunk um, all throughout his childhood. And at times he would become rowdy and they would argue, but there was never any anything beyond that point like no no hitting no shoving no nothing okay when william was young those around him noted that he was a bit odd he never 
He struggled talking to anyone outside of his family. He did poorly in school. And in fact, he like really just didn't want to go to school. He wanted to stay home with his mom. Sounding a little Norman Batesy? Mm-hmm. Not. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> that could be because he was being bullied all the way up until sixth grade. Then he hit a growth spurt and he went from being bullied to being the bully. He got in trouble numerous times for fighting other kids, for not following directions, and for interrupting class by talking. I used to hate, hate kids that would interrupt the class, like, from talking. Not even talking, like, to the teacher, just talking talking to somebody else in general. Like, every time you do that, she has to start over. We gotta listen to the same shit repeatedly. Just shut the fuck up. (laughs) Never happened that way. This wasn't just in school, though. He was being an ass outside of school as well. Uh, Melanie Schultz was one of his friends and stated that she saw William shoot another kid in the eye with a pellet gun. Yeah. Um, When William was 13, he followed in his dad's footsteps and started drinking. This would be the year that he committed his first crime, um, which was stealing a motorcycle. He got arrested for that. Shortly after being arrested for stealing that motorcycle, William decided he was done with school and just dropped out entirely. This is when his life of crime started to accelerate. (laughs) Motorcycle accelerate. (laughs) It was usually smaller crimes, nothing extremely outrageous yet. One of the bigger incidents that happened with him was him getting drunk and uh, driving a car, which ultimately led to... You know, him crashing and a DUI. Okay. So, up until this point, nothing heinous. It's coming. So, two weeks after that crash, he joined the army. He was stationed as a mechanic in West Germany. And during his deployment, he was awarded badges for hand grenade usage as well as marksmanship. I didn't know you could get badges for hand grenade usage. I wasn't aware of that either, but, you know, (laughs) I'm sure... You Your know. dad may know. Oh, I'm sure he probably would. It's just, it's not anything I've ever heard of. Unfortunately, at this time in his life, he chose to do some experimenting, experimenting, experimenting with drugs. And not simple shit like smoking a joint here and there. Like it was hard drugs. Um. Eventually, he became addicted to acid LSD, cocaine, and heroin. Jira, maybe think you might have forgot how to whistle while he's on LSD. I mean, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I. I don't know. Um. So he's doing all those really hard drugs, but he's drinking on top of that. Because he. Oh, had, so yeah. Let's just like intensify it. Right. So he. Yeah. Because he had picked up. An alcohol poison, uh, poison, an alcohol problem at this point. Right. So he probably wasn't the most pleasant person to be around, I would think, at that point. Probably not. Now, in 1979, William was dishonorably discharged from the army for stealing a car. Not just any car. A government-issued vehicle. (laughs) Yeah. Um... That seems to be a common theme, like, throughout his life, is stealing motor vehicles, pretty much of any kind. Anyways, he was sentenced to a year in prison at Fort Leavenworth, um, 
in Leavenworth, Arkansas, which is a military corrections facility. Okay. While he was incarcerated there, he tried to commit suicide by slitting his wrists. And after his year was up, he left and pretty much immediately met a woman. Like, very, very soon after being like, released. Are we talking about, like, he tripped and fell on her or something <clears throat> kind of shit here? Fell in her. No. <laughs> oh, God. No. It's like, whoop, whoop. Oh, hey. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's kind of how that usually goes for some of those type of people anyhow. Yeah. As soon as they get released, the first woman they meet, oh, I fucking love you, let's get married. (laughs) Some shit like that. Yep. Uh, Yeah, so the woman that he met wound up becoming his wife in June of 1980. So less than a year after he, you know, had gotten out, he was married. At least it wasn't like two weeks after they met or some shit like that. Right. Uh, she was an artist. I couldn't find shit out about her. I could not find her name. Nothing. No, maybe she wants nothing to do with what... it. It could be. Um, but she was an artist and they had tried to have a child, but he was diagnosed as having infertility issues. So, you know, shooting blanks ain't going to get you a child. Mm-hmm. And of course, that angered William and that led him to increase his drug abuse habits. He added marijuana at this point and claimed that he smoked about 20 joints a day. No, he didn't. Willie Nelson <laughs> Jr. <laughs> like, you you can only get so high and then you just quit getting high. Isn't there another case that you came yes. and talked about where they yes. literally said 20 joints a the day? The boys on the tracks. That's yes. what I thought it was. Yes. But yeah, that's what that but this was claimed by him like that's how much right. he smoked in a day. And I'm sure Willie Nelson and Snoop Dogg were like, "Oh, that's fucking cute." <laughs> well, their his joints were probably legit joints and not fucking blunts. Right. And this is what the 1980s. Yeah. So, yeah, the marijuana today would probably fucking kill him. Pro- probably. On January 26th, 1991, William was driving his pickup truck and crashed, but chose to speed off and flee the scene of the accident after spotting a police officer that had come by to inspect the other vehicle for damage. This resulted in a high-speed chase where he crashed into yet another vehicle, and he wound up suffering injuries like he, I'm assuming, got a laceration across his head and he had to get stitches. However, the guy that he hit wound up having eight broken ribs. Oh, damn. So he he lucked out being the asshole and hitting not one but two cars and injuring the shit out of the second, you know, the one person. And he was probably drunk, so... Oh, I'm sure. Usually with that is the ragdoll effect that happens with that. Yep, probably. Eight months after that incident, William was charged with sexual battery and robbery against a 21-year-old in Louisville, Kentucky. He sexually assaulted her in a phone booth. Like, if anybody's been in a phone booth, those things are so small. Like, and it's pure glass. How are you going to get in there and, like, sexually assault somebody and nobody see it? Usually when you hear the term sexual assault, you automatically assume rape. Or what you know, yeah. Or forcing themselves on it could have been that he just forcefully groped her or something, possibly, uh, that's true. and that it still would be sexual assault. You know, inappropriately touched her in this phone booth. Well, this true. During the trial for this particular incident, William's lawyer said that he was mentally ill, and therefore requested 
a competency evaluation to be done on William. The examiner that did the evaluation and reported stated that William had an IQ of 79. I don't know if that's good or not. No, it's usually not. But those IQ tests that were given at those times, they are very inaccurate because there's not a standardized test. So they don't yeah. really mean anything. Okay. So, yes, IQ of 79. And he refused to take responsibility for what he did. Instead, he chose to blame it on the alcoholism. Right. Like anybody else would do. The examiner went on to tell the court that William did not suffer from any mental illnesses that would have impaired his judgment. So, just, he fucked up. And that, you know, it's it's fully on him and not on a, a diagnosed mental condition that would cause him to do some right. extra shit, you know? Or is alcoholism. Right. With that stated... William was deemed competent to stand trial. He accepted an Alford plea. Do you know what that is? No. So basically, it's when um, a defendant pleads not guilty um, and claims their innocence, but also realizes that all of the evidence against them pretty much points the finger directly at them, and there's, like, no no reasonable doubt. Right. Of their guilt. So he took that plea and was sentenced to seven years in prison at the Luther Luckett Correctional Facility in LaGrange, Kentucky. His wife divorced him pretty much as soon as he got sent to jail. I mean, don't blame her. Right. Your husband just got arrested for sexually attacking another woman. Right. Yeah, get the fuck away from him. During this prison stay, William was ordered to attend a sex offender rehabilitation program, but due to him not taking responsibility and refusing to admit what he had done, he was deemed ineligible ineligible for participation. And this was ordered by the court. So I don't know how he got around not having to go just because they, they say that he wasn't eligible. Those that were in prison with him, even some of the staff said that he was an obedient inmate yeah um he rarely caused trouble he earned his associate's degree in art while he was incarcerated there were numerous psychiatrists that assessed him during this time in prison and all of them agreed that william had poor judgment and showed signs of conflicting feelings of loneliness and losing control but even with these diagnostics and his refusals to complete the sex offenders rehabilitation program he was deemed unlikely to reoffend. Yeah, okay. How <laughs> do I have this? Why do I have this feeling that's not the fucking case? Which led to him being released from prison on April 8th in 1999. He was immediately put on the Indiana Sex and Violent Offenders Registry. So at least people could have knowledge that he's. What's your favorite word? A wackadoodle? Yeah. Yeah. He was. Not somebody you'd want to you'd wanna run into. After he was a free man, he met and started dating a woman named Kelly Bailey. They seemed to hit it off really quickly, just like his prior marriage started right. off. And their relationship also moved quickly. And they moved into an apartment together in Borden, Indiana. And being a free man to William meant that he had access to 
his drugs of choice again. And in 2000, Kelly left him um, because of his worsening drug habits. Later on the same year, Kelly filed a police report against William. It stated that she was delivering newspapers and that William had found her and blocked her car in with his vehicle. Which is probably stolen anyhow. (laughs) It was actually his vehicle. What? Wow. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So he blocked her in and she got out to confront him and he wound up punching her in the face and stealing her car keys and speeding off. He didn't steal her car. He just took her car keys so she couldn't go anywhere. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, She also stated that William had been stalking her and that this was basically the last straw for her. Kelly's case was considered credible because of the substantial injuries to her face. However, the police didn't pursue it due to lack of evidence. Her whole fucking face was evidence. Right. Like, some of these cases that I, we do... And, like, police are like, huh, you're not enough evidence. Right. Like, Jesus Christ, dude. But on the other hand, you gotta look at it from their side. We don't know all their procedures and protocols. Uh, I understand your frustration with it. That's true. But seriously, if somebody was to walk, if a woman was to walk up to you and you can clearly tell that her face had been, had had the shit punched out of it. You know, she's bleeding, bruised, scratched. Would you just be like... Uh, I, I can see that there's injuries to your face, but you can fuck off. No, it wouldn't be like that. Which is basically what they did. I, I don't know. Moving on. In 2001, William was arrested for stealing a Harley Davidson motorcycle and was sent back to jail for another three years. He spent half of his sentence at the Madison State Hospital in Madison, Indiana. And while he was in the hospital, he received treatment for his... While he was there, while he was in the hospital, he received treatment for his alcohol and uh, drug. Fuck me. Shut up. (laughs) Doing it over. I'm taking a month off when I needed it. Now you keep fucking up. (laughs) Yeah. While he was in the hospital, he received treatment for alcohol and drug addiction. Hospital staff stated that William wasn't interested in any treatments, period. So two more psychiatrists met with him, looked his case over, you know, did tests on him, whatever, and went on to diagnose him as having bipolar disorder. He was given a prescription of Seroquel, which has been prescribed to me for sleep because apparently it's supposed to help you with sleep and it didn't do shit for sleep for me. Yeah. Um, I took it like three weeks and it's sitting in my dresser. <laughs> like, no. Nah. But I mean, for what he was supposed to take it for, it might have been effective. Um, however, there were still no, there was still, however, there were still no diagnoses for mental or psychiatric disorders noted. However, bipolar disorder is a mental illness. Shit. <laughs> It's like, seriously, you should know this, like, straight up without fucking reading it. Okay. (laughs) The word just didn't want to come to me. I'm going to do it over. However, bipolar disorder is a mental illness. But I digress. 
After he was released from the hospital, he went to Floyd County Jail to finish out his sentence and was, and was released on March 12th in 2002. Now, before we move into the real crazy shit, I'm going to throw in not a disclaimer. I mean, I will throw in a disclaimer because I left all the details in here that were given to the public. Um, I just want to state that he was very, very close with his mom. Very close. She was always there for him, no matter what he did wrong. Like, she was a perfect example of unconditional love. Okay. Like, to a fault. Um, each time he went to jail, that I've already talked about, right. like, he'd get out, he'd immediately be welcomed back home to her with open arms. Literally, every time he got out of jail. Didn't matter what he did. Sexual assault, went home to mom. Stealing, went home to mom. Um, Every time he was let back in that house, she saw past his fucked up parts and loved him anyways, which most, you know, most parents would. But I do believe she would have, um, I don't believe she would have done this with the shit that I'm about to get into. Her passing away is what most people believe was the precursor to what I'm going to get into. Even though this shit started happening way before she ever died, it just didn't come to light until after. Okay. Okay? All right. So we're going to get into the fun bits. Okay. On October 10th, 2002, Jeffersonville, Indiana, William met a 33-year-old named Karen Hodella. She was a beautician from Port Orange, Florida. She was there um, with her husband just visiting the two started to talk, and then they wound up leaving with each other after a confrontation by her husband. Like she just left with him. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. They continued going from bar to bar before they found themselves in a parking lot in New Albany, Indiana. Before Karen accused William of stealing prescription medications out of her purse. This, of course, pissed William off and caused an argument, and then that escalated and caused him to become violent. Clyde wound up punching Karen in the face. Sound familiar? Karen fought back, and a struggle ensued. Clyde reached into his pocket, pulled out a pocket knife, and began stabbing Karen in her throat numerous times. William did an interview with a podcast called Where the Bodies Are Buried. And in it, he said... And this is a direct quote from his mouth. I had a pretty good idea it was her last night on Earth. He also then went to say, I hit her right in her jugular vein. Just instantly it started squirting blood. And he fucking chuckled while saying it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. He then admitted to cutting pieces off of her body and eating them before having sex with her dead body. He then drove around with her for a while just laying there lifeless next to him before ultimately dumping her body in Clarksville, Indiana. Afterward, he went to a tattoo shop and got a tattoo of the date he killed her with a knife next to it to symbolize his murder weapon. And this way he would never forget that kill. Never forget that kill? It was your first fucking one. It's like, how are you going to forget that? Well, I'll get to that. Well... I know. But it's a nice little keepsake, huh? I guess so. 
Karen's extremely decayed body was found on January 7th in 2003. She was only identifiable by her thumbprint, which matched up with um, her name, picture, and all that in the jail database from her being arrested previously. Her case remained unsolved until April of 2012. Three weeks later, William was arrested for drinking and driving. Imagine. Yeah. He went through a four-day medical withdrawal, detox, whatever you want to call it. And during this time, he often complained of headaches, stomach aches, and insomnia, and hypochondria. I don't know why he complained of that. Uh, The jail psychiatrist stated that he was suffering from mild anxiety and antisocial behavior, but was otherwise fine, and that he was mentally sane. After his release, he went back to live with his mom and tried to sue the prison authorities. He claimed that they had denied him access to his Seroquel and housed him in, like, insanely filthy conditions. Which, it's a prison. It's not going to be a fucking Holiday Inn, you know? Right. The suit wound up being thrown out by the judge that was overseeing it, and he basically considered it, like, a, a baseless lawsuit. William continued his usual bar hopping habits. He was at a bar on Friday 21st, 2006, and wound up stealing a purse and $300 from somebody he knew, one of his acquaintances. And this woman's husband was able to track William's uh, brown Toyota down because, you know, the woman went home, told her husband. Husband's like, I'm going to find this son of a bitch. Yeah. He found him. And William was arrested again for theft, and he spent another three years in prison and then went back to mommy. (laughs) But yeah, after being released on the 4th of July in 2009, he did go back to his mom's house. He was able to find a job at CNC Hardwood Flooring in Borden, Indiana. He was referred to as a diligent worker and got nothing but positive praises from his friends and neighbors for attending a non-denominational church called Power of the Cross. He liked making paper mache crafts and helping his mom, who was becoming more and more sick. On the other side of the token, his bar buddies considered him very strange, and many of them stated that on numerous occasions he would ask women to go back to his house, and more often than not, they did. Yeah. Unfortunately, his mom's health declined rapidly and she passed away on January 18th in 2012. And like I said earlier, it's believed that this was like the catalyst in the shit that I'm going to get into now. Like, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it impacted him mentally. I mean, I get that. But William was now totally alone living in his dead mom's house. What else could go wrong? You know, he's going to church. He's a good boy. All right. He's the goodest boy. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. On March 24th, 2012, William met 35-year-old Stephanie Kirk at a bar. He had talked about taking her on a motorcycle ride, so they had planned on doing that. However, they spent the entire day doing drugs and doing each other. (laughs) When they went to William's house, they also got into an argument about stolen pills. Do you see a recurring theme yet? Another recurring theme? Oh, they're stealing pills? Yeah. 
arguments and, and stolen drugs. Uh, William got pissed and violent yet again. He proceeded to rape Stephanie and then strangle her to death. He sexually assaulted her corpse and in the process of raping her post-mortem, which he was doing very roughly, he broke her back. He then drug her body outside and buried her in the backyard of his mom's house. April 18th, 2012. William was visited by 75-year-old Christine Whitus, I believe is how you say it. I've never heard the last name before, so I don't know. I'm just going to say Whitus. Okay. Um, she was a really good friend of his mom's. Like, she used to babysit William when he was little. So she came by to check on him, of course. You know, she... It was basically second mom to him. Um, when his mom was alive, Christine would come over and help out, including helping William with, like, giving him money if he needed money for something. William said that after Christine's husband died that they started having sex. When she stopped over this day, William was in the middle of dismembering a woman's body. She happened to walk in and catch him in the act. William snatched her up, brought her in the house, and strangled her before raping her dead body. He made a claim on video stating, and this is a direct quote from him, I never had sex with her, I just played with her with my hands. Mm. Yeah. Which is untrue, and I'll get to that. <laughs> he mutilated her corpse. He cut off her right breast with a kitchen knife and put it in his pocket. He then took her body out to the garage and left her there surrounded by numerous full bags of garbage. William used Christine's Blue Dodge Caravan to go to Hooters afterwards. With a tit in his pocket. With a titty in his pocket. He got super drunk, and while he ate, he kept his hand in his pocket and continued playing with Christine's breast. Wow. This is where that fucking song that I told you about popped in my head. <laughs> Because I was just thinking, and I don't know why <clears throat> hand in my pocket by Linus Morissette popped into my head. <laughs> into my head. I'm like, I got one hand in my pocket and it's playing with the dead lady's nipple. Like, <laughs> I told you, I told you it was fucked up. But every time I had to like read or reread that out of all the shit that I read. <laughs> yeah. I'd get to that part, and that's that's what... I have a fucked up brain, I'm sorry. It was funny. Not a funny situation, but me thinking of it like that was funny. Right. Yeah. Anyways, gotta have humor, people. Fucking humor. He also invited a guy to his house afterwards, and they went back to the house, continued drinking whiskey, while Christine's body was just laying lifeless in the garage. One day later, April 19th, 2012... William's sisters, Brenda Ray and Teresa Adam, came by to get the mileage off their mom's car um, that was needed. An attorney had sent a letter to them stating they needed it for whatever, selling the estate. Yeah. That's what they were there for, was to talk, to get the mileage off the car and to talk to William about selling the house, the estate, everything. Yeah. So they probably needed the mileage for an accurate probably. value of the car from the Kelly Blue Books. Probably. They noticed um, once they got inside that the house was in disarray and that William wasn't there. So they began to look around. Brenda Ray went out to the garage and that's when Christine's lifeless body was found. In an interview done for Courier Journal in Indianapolis, Teresa Adam, 
um, heard Brenda yell, oh, my God, is this real? And it wasn't like a scared kind of yell. It was more like a the fuck. Yeah, more of a shock kind of. Yeah. So Brenda Ray thought that Christine's dead body was a blow up doll or some weird paper mache project that William was working on because he did like to paper mache. Right. Okay. Brenda Ray noted that she realized it was a woman when she saw the pool of blood underneath her. Um, She added that the legs were bent in a very unnatural position. And it was then that the sisters called 911 in a panic and they set out to look for William. On April 20th in 2012, police noticed a car driving erratically and pulled it over for a suspected DUI. The car pulled into a Walmart parking lot and police found the driver to be none other than William. The lead detective noted that when he walked up that William was messing with something in the center console and Probably a cop is automatically <laughs> cop is automatically going to assume they're going to grab a weapon or get ready to throw drugs. Right. Um they ha- really had to tussle with him outside of the car to get him to calm down enough for them to handcuff him. So in the picture one of the pictures that I'll add or that we'll add to the Facebook post once um, this episode goes live is a picture of his face all busted up and like bloody. It's because he basically, for lack of a better terms, had, you know, scrubbed the, the pavement with his face. <laughs> Fell on his face, break his fall? <laughs> yes. Yes, his face broke his fall. Um, a police officer went in the car to check the console to see what it was that he was, you know, trying to hide or take out. And they were expecting a weapon only to find Christine's breast. So you were right. They found a titty in the console. He was then arrested and hauled off to jail. On April 25th, 2012, William was charged with the murder of Christine. And that's all they knew about at that point. While he was in jail, he chose to confess to the murder of Karen and was then allowed to lead officers to his house and then to the backyard. And he was able to point out, like, exactly, like, where that, she was. that's where I buried Karen. Two days later, on April 27th, Karen's body was exhumed from the ground. Fast forward to May 23rd of 2012, William was officially charged with the murders of all three women. Prosecutors came out stating that he would be getting the death penalty for all three of them. Well, one of them, he got 65 years. So they said three death sentences plus 65 years. I don't know how that works, but apparently it does. Prosecutors introduced the recording of his interview with detectives where he states that an evil overcame him and made him commit the crimes. So now the devil's at play. On October 25th, 2013... William was found guilty in the first case, and it took jurors less than 20 minutes to reach the verdict. A month later, at his sentencing, he was told that he was getting the death penalty, and he basically said, no big deal, I deserve it. Fucking right, you do. (laughs) So he went and got himself a prison tattoo. You want to know what it is? What's that? (laughs) He got death row times three in big, bold letters on the back of his fucking head. Yep. So at the end of 2014, all three cases were closed. He received the death penalty for all of them. And since sentencing, William has appealed all three of his death sentences and every single one of them have been denied. 
In 2018, William was one of several inmates featured in a documentary called Inside Death Row. He has been on multiple podcasts and stated that there are 30 other women throughout the whole United States that he's killed, raped, and even eaten. And he's mentioned that they tasted funny and that he is a sick motherfucker. So that is William Clyde Gibson. However, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you go and listen to the podcast Where the Bodies Are Buried that has his interview with this podcast host. Okay. Fucking insane. This dude is insane. Oh. He's, like, giggling and, like, the, ho- the whole time. The whole time. He's just, it. like, it doesn't phase him whatsoever. What he did. Well, it's, most of them usually doesn't. But, he, yeah, he's he's a sick and twisted individual, for yeah. sure. I'm really surprised you never heard of that. Not every case of murder or whatever makes it across to our state, you know, it's just usually... But when they're a serial killer? Right. Well, you haven't really had a whole lot of serial killers out of Indiana. We've had Bell Guinness, Herb Baumeister, and this guy. I found a page on Ranker that has 10 different serial killers from Indiana. Oh, and allegedly H.H. Holmes as well, too, for a short time. I don't know. But yeah, that's that. Why would you walk around with a titty? A dead titty in your pocket. I don't know. And play with it while you're eating. <laughs> Grayson, now anytime I see some guy digging around his you know, pocket and not... <laughs> He's not just digging he's for not change. Playing, he's not playing pocket pool. He's playing with a pocket titty now. <laughs> it's his new stress ball. It's like you know how you see those memes from like people that are overly paranoid now because they listen to too much true crime. Yeah. They always automatically assume that that tra- bag of trash on the side of the road is a dead body. Uh-huh. Now and automatically assume someone in their <laughs> hand in their pocket is playing with a fucking titty now. Thanks. You're welcome. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah, I saw, like, I don't even remember how I found him. I have no idea how I found him. Right. But I started reading and I was like, Indiana, serial killer. Right. Cannibalistic tendencies. David's never mentioned this asshole. Like, I'm doing it. You gotta remember, I have been in the true crime as long as you have been. That's true. And you may not have... Even if it did play on the news or something up here, there's there's no saying that you would have watched it or even paid attention to it. That's true. So it could have been talked about up here. Anyways, what you got, Lobster Boy? (laughs) Well, as you've already said, Lobster Boy. (laughs) Not not Grady Styles, though. No. There was only one Lobster Boy. Well, there's technically two. And he liked Tupperware parties. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) God. So a few weeks ago, I brought you the story of the Great Dumpling War of Bavaria, where Helmut Winter, a graphic artist from Munich, waged war on Germany and the USA to fly their planes higher. 
Well, what if I told you I might have found something more bonkers of a war that lasted three years over a crustacean scientifically known as Hermarus gamarus, or simply known as lobsters? Uh-huh. The lobster war was better known as Guerrero de Lagoste by the Portuguese and Conflict de Lagosta by the French, which was a dispute over French fishing vessels catching spiny lobsters or rock lobsters. Rock lobster! <laughs> Approximately 100 miles from Brazil's northern coastline. Spiny lobsters or rock lobsters as commonly known, they are commonly known as as well, and what I will refer to them as because of, you know, the B-52's first hit single, Frog Lobster. So it's once I learned this fact because the Wikipedia page actually redirects you to the the page for the spiny lobster. Does it really? Yep. Huh. But as for the crustacean, it can grow up to 30 to 40 centimeters in length, which is 11 to 15 inches. That's big. And, and that's in their size as an adult. They can also really get up to 60 centimeters, which is 23 inches long. Jesus. They can be found in almost all warm sea climates, such as the Caribbean and Mediterranean seas, but are very common in areas known as Australasia. I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but it's a region between New Zealand and Australia. Okay. So I'm not sure how they came up with that name, because I found it a little odd that somehow they couldn't combine Australia and New Zealand with together from that but that's where this region is is where they're mostly at but they are referred to as crayfish in that region okay rock lobsters have a sweeter taste and are typically 25 percent larger as well than their main counterparts okay in 1961 the brazilian government issued a research permit to three french ships to study the lobsters off the coastline of the brazilian state of pernambuco this seems harmless, but in reality, the French were trolling for lobster along with a fourth ship instead of the three that the permit was issued for. When Brazil found this out, they rescinded their permits to the French and ordered them to leave in April of 1961. The French would return in November of the same year, but further out on the continental shelf outside of Brazilian waters. Interactions between the fishermen of the two countries would remain like this until January 2nd, 1962, when Brazil seized a French fishing boat for not having a permit for fishing lobster. Fishing rights were commonly disputed during this time. Brazil would claim that the lobsters off their coastlines are important to their economy and had the right to regulate and harvest them, whereas the French claimed that they were in the right to fish there as they weren't in territorial waters and are on the high seas. Okay. The law that actually determined these areas wouldn't be an internationally established until 1982 how this is established on what's high seas and territorial coastlines and things like that is that the baseline territorial seas are 12 nautical miles from the actual physical coastline and a nautical mile is actually 746 feet longer than a regular mile of 5280 feet okay and why they're longer, it has to do with being able to measure the distance between lines lines of longitude and latitude is why nautical miles are much longer than what we know with driving. Okay. Nautical miles are from a fixed point known as the baselines. And 200 nautical miles out from the established baseline is an exclusive economic zone that generally contains the continental shelf. And beyond those 200 nautical miles is considered the high seas. But... For the continental shelf, 
itself for definition so you have an understanding of what that is. This is an area of the seabed around a larger landmass, being the continents, for example. Right. Where the sea is relatively shallow compared with the open ocean. The continental shelf is generally a flat area that is great for setting up oil rigs and fishing for lobster and other tasty neighbors of SpongeBob. <laughs> What? I don't know why that was so funny. I threw oh it in God. there intentionally like that for a laugh, but I didn't think you'd find it that funny. Yeah, because my, <coughs> my head immediately went to Plankton. <laughs> that little that little slimy bastard. <laughs> Anyways. So, during their, nego their negotiations between Brazil and France, they would debate on if lobsters were part of the continental shelf or not. Brazil would claim that they are part of the continental the continental shelf since lobsters tend to travel by using their legs. Mm -hmm. But, however, the French would counter this argument that lobsters should be considered a fish as they only move on the seafloor by walking and jumping. But when they jump, they are swimming in part of the ocean, which makes them fish. Oh my god. Making them free of regulation from Brazil. Now, I'm going to try and pronounce this man's name and I'm probably going to murder this <clears throat> since I don't speak Portuguese, but I'm going to try. Okay. Navy officer Paulo de Castro Moreira del Salvo. Yes, his name is that long. Okay. He's also the Brazil's oceanography expert for the Navy. So this man knows what he's talking about. I, I mean, I would hope so. Would state that during these arguments, by analogy, if a lobster is a fish because it leaps, then a kangaroo is a bird. Because of the outrageous claims of the French saying that's a fish because the, it, a lobster's jump and it swims, making how, it a fish. How do you... How, how do you compare the two, though? I don't know, but the French are trying to say it's a fish just right. because it can jump and then swim, but an oceanographer is, like, saying, no, that's not the fucking case. But that's the analogy. He came up with a yeah. argument. I'm just like, how the, how the hell do you make those? How do you tie those together? A fish and a kangaroo. Or not a fish, a bird and a kangaroo. Well, he was saying because a kangaroo's jump is making it a bird because it jumps in the air. Because it, it flies at that point? Yeah. Because oh he's trying to say that's like what the French are trying to say about lobsters. They're right. other fish now because they leapt up from the seabed to swim. That's so stupid. Even during these debates, French fishermen would return to the waters off the coast of Pernambuco, Brazil, still fishing for lobster. Like before, these boats would be seized and the captains would be ordered to sign statements that would state that they were not to return after they would be released. In 1963, France would send diplomats to secure fishing rights off the coast. It was reported by the diplomats that more fishing boats were headed to Brazil at the time of the negotiations and Brazilians would request that they be turned away and not be given permission to fish during their negotiations. It was most likely Brazil wasn't going to give France the rights to fish either way, even with these negotiations going on. But after Time Magazine would find out that the French were catching up to $3 million or $29.7 million today worth of exports, this pretty much pissed off the Brazilian population. Oh well, yeah, I can bet. But Brazilian President Wal Gallart... <laughs> would issue a presidential order that would allow three fishing boats from France permission to fish after they were released. My guess is that this was some kind of, like, I guess you say, a good gesture yeah. towards them to 
during their negotiations on this part. The people of Brazil would be furious with the president's decision, and by February 1963, the president would give these fishing, all the French fishing boats an ultimatum that they are to leave Brazilian waters and the continental shelf within 48 hours. So that flipped really quick. Yeah. Well, this didn't sit well with the French president, Charles de Gaulle, who would order a Navy destroyer to move in and protect these fishing boats on February 21st. Okay. So a Navy destroyer is like the next ship down from the great big battleships like the USS Arizona. Okay. And there's another famous one I can't remember off the top of my head. But you've heard of the USS Arizona, so Yes. That's like I mean like see artillery like they give artillery support and destroyers are give support as well, but not on the same extent as the main battleships in the United States or any Navy has. And the foreign minister of Brazil, Hermes, Hermes Lima, would stated that this is an act of hostility and our government will not retreat and the lobsters will not be caught. The main concern for Brazil wasn't this one destroyer that was being sent to protect these boats, but more so where it came from. This destroyer was actually dispatched from a fleet that was already on a mission off the coast of Africa. And at the head of this fleet was the aircraft carrier Clemenceau. Okay. The Clemenceau had with her was one cruiser and seven other destroyers as an escort. Oh. Yeah. Coming in hot. So they were more were concerned that if things got ugly, that those ships would be coming towards them instead. Right. And with their position off the coast of Africa, it would only take approximately three days for them to get there. How how far in between is it? They This is like on the most eastern tip of South America, and I cannot find where they were at exactly in Africa. But all the sources I read said it would take three days for them to get there. Huh. So I'm going to guess probably somewhere on in the western part of the mediterranean sea or somewhere on the western coast of africa okay somewhere but for three days probably at full steam probably wasn't gonna take long yeah especially for ships of this size it, it sounds like a long time but to be out out cruising on the water like right. that's definitely gonna take more time with the short distance away for ships of this size brazil would decided that it was best their best course of action was to mobilize its own Navy and Air Force. Oh, goodness. Their only problem with this is that they made this decision of the eve of Carnival. Oh. So, with that, a lot of their air and seamen were on shore leave at the time, but they were able to gather them back up and mobilize their Navy. Mm-hmm. And with the sudden mobilization, they would call these movements of troops scheduled exercises in case any questions were raised. I mean, smart. Yeah, because, I mean, you're in peacetime and then all of a sudden you're tired, like, a good share of your navies mobilizing for no yeah. reason. It's like, what's going on, you yeah. know? Uh, so, Brazil would dispatch two task force, one to the, nice, the, the northeast composed of two cruisers, six destroyers, a submarine, and an aircraft carrier. Even though with more guns in the water off the coast of Brazil, they did run into multiple problems for this possible lobster war. Lobster war. 
Since the Brazilian Navy didn't have its own tankers for fuel, they would have to lease one from the oil company Petrobras, as where most militaries they keep their own their own tankers to refuel their own ships and everything. Mm-hmm. They didn't have one, so they had oh, to right. find one. Okay. Which I don't know if you I know you're not a lot into military stuff, but oh, yeah. it's quite interesting seeing some videos on how they refuel. Aircraft mid-flight, ships in mid-sail, and stuff like that. It's just quite interesting how they do it, and it's just a feat within itself on a lot of this stuff. You can refuel mid-flight? Yep. hmm Certain aircraft can. By another yep. aircraft? Yep. Um, my former brother-in-law, his dad that was in the Air Force Reserve, he was part of the refueling division out of Grissom Air Force Base that we pass uh, our way to Indianapolis. Yeah. So he's been part of those crews that did that kind of thing. I didn't know that that was a thing. Yeah, I'll have to show you when we're done. I just figured they'd have, like, reserve tanks, you know? No, they mean they do, but they also, certain fighter planes and bombers can fuel mid-flight so they can essentially fly infinitely. Huh. You know, until something fails. Right. Right. You know, like I said, military stuff doesn't interest you, but the things, Mm -mm. the technology that militaries use to keep things going is quite interesting. Right. So, continuing on yeah. from that before I get to sidetracked anymore, some of the warships that some of the warships that Brazil had were in poor condition as their entire navy was comprised composed of vintage warships from World War II that they bought from the United States, except for the aircraft carrier which they purchased from the British Royal Navy. Their cruisers would have boiler issues wherein one of them needed repairs that would take up to 15 days to complete and the other half of the boilers on another destroyer were partially operational. So that doesn't slow them down at all? Like only having half working equipment? I'm sure it doesn't. I mean, it does because it's like it's not running at its max efficiency, so it's not going to be able to run at its max maximum speed in the water. Okay. But the one that did have the major boiler issues, it was eventually taken back out of service when it was first called into service for this possible lobster war. Gotcha. Uh, Also, with one of these cruisers, it wouldn't have enough ammunition for its main guns, along with one of its turrets was inoperable, and another two having to be manually controlled by sailors instead of having automatic controls. Along with its... Turrets being stuck in manual mode, basically, or not being operational as well. Four of its six radars that would use for aiming the main guns were also inoperable on this one oh. cruiser or destroyer. And also with on these ships, they would only have enough ammunition f- ammunition for approximately 30 minutes in battle. And the Navy depots only were stocked with ammunition for the 20 millimeter guns, which is not the main guns that these ships had. So that, like, 30 minutes max is all I get. Yeah, for the most part. Oh, good lord. And uh, the Brazilian aircraft carrier was only set for helicopter operations, and they didn't have any fixed-wing aircraft, which is basically your airplanes, for the most part. Okay. It's a fixed-wing aircraft. Uh, the Brazilian Air Force was mostly only capable of recon and not actual air assaults or air-to-air combat or anything like that as well. Right. Whereas the French warships were more modern, where the aircraft carrier, the aircraft carrier that is sitting off the African coast, was commissioned in 1960 along with a destroyer 
that was commissioned in 1958. So the French had the technology, even though the Brazilians had the numbers, so to speak, even though they had quite a few issues. Like their aircraft carrier was commissioned in 1945. So the French definitely had the upper hand. Technology-wise, yes. Yeah. Which, even with technology, would still probably would have gave them an edge if they actually had gotten into actual combat. Right. On February 26th, the Brazilian Air Force would discover the location of the destroyer Tartu sent by the French to protect the fishing boat and photograph it the next day using a B-17 Flying Fortress setup for recon operations. And would continuously report back to its report back its location until the Brazilian destroyer Panara would reach Tartu and shadow her until she steams back to Africa on March 2nd. To Brazil's surprise, thinking that this conflict might be over, well, it's not. Tartu was replaced with a smaller warship called the Paul Goffney. Okay. Probably the Tartu is running out of supplies is more likely what it is. And instead of sending in more, trying to probably not escalate the situation, it's like just switch ships out. We're not sending a supply ship instead. So they sent a smaller ship. Yeah. Okay. They sent another smaller <laughs> warship to defend the boats, the fishing boats, if things escalated or whatnot. Okay. Because if they probably would have sent the Paul Goffney at the same time, Brazil probably would have seen this as, okay, things are starting to ramp up. We need to do something. So instead, so it probably was just swap them out. Not it escalated any further than this already has because, you know. The French Navy is probably reporting back that, yeah, we're being followed by a destroyer. It's not doing anything. It's just following, blah, blah, blah. We're also being tracked, you know, being tracked by this airplane. Nothing, mm -hmm. Nothing's happened. So there was no reason to fire first, I guess. Yet, you know, because one of the first rules of engagement is, is you do not fire unless you're fired upon first for the most part. Right. So it's basically like they're in a standoff. Yeah. So it's like basically fucking around to find out, bro. <laughs> Bruh. <laughs> the Brazilian Navy, though, would send more ships as reinforcements as the Paul Guffney appeared in its waters. By March 10th, the Paul Guffney and the four fishing boats would leave Brazil and return to Africa. After confirmation from the French dispatching the area... Brazil would demobilize its navy and return to peacetime operations. The end of the lobster war could be said was won by Brazil, and that Brazil would eventually give the French the authorization for 26 ships and boats to come fish for lobsters in Brazilian waters for five years and stipulate that they would have to give a portion of their profits to Brazilian fishermen in the areas that they were fishing. Wait a minute. How do you, how do they say that Brazil won? Like they didn't even fight. And this was during the Cold War. So, I mean, this is just one of those he said, she said kind of things that a show of force is basically is what they're trying to say is that Brazil showed its teeth, so to speak, and the French backed down. This could possibly be why. Or the French could have been like, this is fucking stupid. Let's go home, guys. Maybe that too. Yeah. And then they still got a piece of the pie because they're allowed 20, how many ships? 26? 26 ships and boats. Yeah. So I feel like the French won this shit. No, it's a possibility, but I wasn't done yet either. Okay, go. Okay, go. So even with that, with the people saying that maybe Brazil had won this, they would actually extend their territorial waters to 200 nautical, model, 200 nautical miles out. Whereas they are typically only 12 nautical miles. 
So they're Brazil, typically what? It's only 12 nautical miles, territorial mm-hmm. waters, and coastal. And they went out to 200? Yes. Okay. Because they're doing it to protect their one of their major incomes, of which is this rock, spiny lobster. So, I do have some fun facts about <laughs> lobsters in general and the rock lobsters. Let's hear about the rock lobsters. So, rock lobsters can live up to 20 years of age. And the main way that rock lobsters defend themselves from predators is by rubbing their antenna along the smoother part of their exoskeletons to make a screeching sound. Oh. Yeah. So, so it's like the equivalent of yeah. nails on a mm-hmm. chalkboard. Yep. To fish. Oh. Right. That's awful. Now, this isn't specific to this specific species of lobster because I like watch other videos. A lot of them do this. Uh-huh. Lobsters can swim forward and backwards using their tail. Really? Yep. They swim faster going backwards than they do forward. Because if they're going forward, they're pushing with their tail and then they're pulling oh, with yeah. their tail if they're swimming backwards. So they're going to move faster swimming backwards by pulling with their tail. Gotcha. I mean, it makes sense. If you're in a pool and you're swimming forward, you go faster. But if you try and go backwards, yeah. it's less so. It's just the opposite for them. Yeah. And also... Female lobsters' tails are much larger than males' tails because it's to help protect their eggs. Huh. Uh, lobsters are social animals, and healthier lobsters will move away from infected lobsters, leaving them to fend for themselves. Well, that's rude. They also can detect Earth's magnetic field and use this for navigation, and then they will also migrate in larger groups, single file, up to 50 lobsters in one group. Single file? Yep. Huh. The world's largest lobster was caught off the coast of Nova Scotia in 1977 and weighed 44 pounds and 6 ounces. Holy shit. Now this next one, it's still quite interesting, but I'm not sure how much scientific fact of it is. The world's oldest lobster, even though it's not a rock, not a rock lobster, was named George and was estimated to be about 154 years old. George was originally caught in the wild in 2008 and released back into the wild after 10 days later by members of PETA in Kennebunk, Maine, in an area where lobster fishing is forbidden. So, actually, PETA did something correct for once. <laughs> for Even once. though George probably migrated off on his own, on his zone at some point. Mm-hmm. Because lobsters, in some of the facts I read, they can... They don't travel a whole lot, but they can travel up to a mile, so hopefully they didn't do it right right on the edge of this forbidden fishing zone. Yeah, and he got away scot-free. How they were able to determine George's weight was by estimating one, one pound of growth for every 7 to 10 years for lobster. 154 years old, though? That's what they claim. But that dude, he, that lobster, I saw pictures of it, he has some massive, massive claws. So. Oh my god, I bet. They'd probably snap your fucking noggin. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm going to guess, estimate that. So, that's the lobster war between French and Brazil. There's also one that happened between the United States and Canada, and there's also... <laughs> yeah. I didn't look into that. This was the first one that came up for it. There was also sea also... American Canadian lobster wars like nope this is the one I'm doing this is what I heard of yeah honestly I probably should have read both and see which ones are more interesting but nah but that was that was interesting yeah. I didn't know that lobsters and you know water were uh 
that big of a deal to have oh, yeah. to like I said, there's actual like on some of the sources there was also see the Cod Wars and some other Cod Wars? Yeah, I mean it's basically the same thing, but instead of lobsters it was cod, you know. And that was in during the nineteenth century. Oh my gosh. And there's I mean, this is no different than, you know, countries going to war over oil or any other resources in some countries. Yeah. You know, this True. is like like I said, $3 million a year Brazil was losing out because of the French, larger French shipping, fishing vessels were harvesting these lobster. So they were only local to the, like that one, that one area basically. Yeah. For the most part that they were, even though for ships it was probably like the 200 nautical miles is probably still local for them anyhow. Yeah. I wonder how they were able to go from just the 12 nautical miles to 200. Well, the laws of the seas weren't established yet until 1982, so we're like, yep, we're claiming all this out here, so it may be kind of grandfathered into it. I'm not uh, hmm. a nautical be. law expert or anything of the sort. Right. But, yeah, that's just kind of one weird little wartime history kind of thing I found that I'm going to do this month. I'm going to maybe do some animal-related ones, too, and then there's the one that I hinted to you before that did, you know, you, you know, the United States military dropped out of airplanes. And you're going to do that Blizzard. one for Memorial Day, right? Yep, the week of okay. Memorial Day. Well, yeah. It actually would be May 31st, if I remember correctly, when I checked the calendar for it. But okay. I don't know. I find it bizarre and goofy, so maybe I'm hyping it up too much. But your bizarre and goofy usually winds up being, like, bizarre and goofy right. to everybody. So I think it'll be all right. Right. Like I was discussing with Kevin the other night, I was telling him, I was like, I want to tell you what this Memorial Day story is, but I want it to be a surprise for everybody. He's like, oh, damn it. Come on, man. <laughs> did you tell him? No, I did not. Okay. Because it's something I heard about on one of my favorite podcasts, before, you know, when I first started discovering podcasts that mm -hmm. I heard the story. And I'm just like, what? And it's something I should have asked my, if I would have known about then when my grandfather was still alive what his thoughts are on it because of his job that he had when he retired. Oh. That he did after his after he went into retirement. Gotcha. So, but anyhow, I'm sure I've probably told you what that was before, so you might figure I it out. I don't know. I might have told you, but anyway. I'm thinking it might be time to close the Emporium up for the day since the cats are starting to get a little rambunctious around here and Ginger's getting a little mouthy. A little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, until next time. Remember to creep it real. Please check out our website at macabreemporiumpodcast.com. Join our Facebook group by searching Macabre Emporium. Like and subscribe on YouTube at Macabre Emporium Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Macabre Emporium. And if you have any stories of the paranormal, your local true crime, or weird history that you would want us to look into and possibly do an episode on, email us at macabreemporiumpod at gmail.com. Remember to follow, rate, like, review, and share whenever and wherever you can and help us grow our little baby podcast. The sides of his lobsters were probably the sides of our sticky bean here on the table. Do you always have to put your asshole right on the corner of my computer? <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Literally. <laughs>